Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening. Welcome everyone and uh, thanks for waking up early and I hope uh, this is an opportunity with this virus affecting all of us at all our hospitals so severely that the residents can still uh, learn something about urology. Uh, so thanks to Alex and Gina for setting this up. I think it's a fantastic idea. Uh, and I think everyone's going to get a lot of benefit out of this. And I think it might be something that continues well after this virus situation is over. Uh, once we have a library of these talks, I think it'll be very useful for studying for various tests. So I geared this talk toward things that'll be very useful, things that may or may not get asked on your exams, but in more important terms is very practical and useful in your daily practice. Uh, so I welcome any questions uh, at the end and please also feel free to email me later if you have any questions about my talk. And I talk about complications of ureteroscopy, which is one of the most common urological procedures, as you know, uh, and complications occur in quite a percent, quite a large percent of patients, up to 10% or more. Uh, so most of them are minor, luckily. But I'm going to talk about oper uh, complications that occur in the operating room as well as postoperatively recognized complications. So one of the one of the most common complications we see is ureteral bleeding from ureteroscopy. It has been noted to occur in about uh, up to 2% of procedures in the literature, but usually it's minimal bleeding and it's typically encountered from instrumentation and manipulation of a tight ureteral orifice and a demitis or a tight ureter and a tight or tortuous UPJ. And it's usually caused by minor disruption of mucosal vessels that lead to minor bleeding. Uh, because it's minor mucosal vessels that are causing this, usually the management is just to advance your sheath or ureteroscope across the area to tamponade it to prevent the bleeding. Caveat being, if the sheet that you're using is large, then it could exacerbate the injury and cause a mucosal or complete tear of that area. So you have to be very judicious in advancing the sheath past the bleeding area. Usually this bleeding is quite self-limited. Uh, in cases where you're actually causing the bleeding, where you're bleeding a TCC, then it, the bleeding can be quite brisk and come from an arterial source from feeding vessels. Placing the ureteroscope above the lesion, if the, lesion, if the bleeding is uh, obscuring your view or is quite brisk or pulsatile, uh, with the irrigation off, usually allows the bleeding to cease and the procedure can be continued. The reason you put the ureteroscope above the lesion is the ureteroscope tamponades the area that's bleeding, but also it prevents bleed blood from going into the upper tract. It forces the blood to go sort of against the ureteroscope and down instead of up, because if the collecting system fills with clots, then you're gonna have a difficult time proceeding with the case. The reason for turning the irrigation off is the irrigation usually keeps the venous channels open. And by, uh, uh, by keeping the channels open, it's not allowing clot to form in the vessel. So you want the clot vessel to clot off, so you wanna use the irrigation off and just leave it there for a few minutes and then restart. If the bleeding persists, you can place a large caliber ureteral stent to help tamponade it, or you can gently inflate a balloon, doesn't have to be inflated all the way against the lesion and leave it there for a few minutes uh, to tamponade it. And if the bleeding persists after these maneuvers, you can consider using a three-way Foley catheter for continuous irrigation to prevent clots from retaining in the bladder and causing clot retention. And many of these patients who bleeding is brisk and continues and doesn't stop, you may have to take for angioembolization. 
Endopylotomy, again, is an iatrogenic injury to the ureter that we're treating on purpose to treat a stricture at the UPJ, and this can lead to bleeding as well. This can be prevented by cutting true lateral position, since studies by Francisco Sampaio in Brazil and subsequently by others using resin endocasts of the vascular system of the kidney have shown that there are no crossing vessels uh, laterally to the UPJ, and this is true of normal UPJs as well as uh, congenitally obstructed UPJs. Uh, and since the major vessels to the lower pole of the kidney are anterior, posterior, and not lateral, then that's the safest area to cut. Placing the tip of the scope directly on the bleeding vessel and turning the irrigation off usually is sufficient for the tamponade. In these situations, because the renal pelvis is enormous and dilated, placing the ureteroscope up into the collecting system may not be sufficient, especially if you've already made a cut and now it's wide open. Uh, you're gonna actually have to put the ureteroscope against the bleeding vessel. Uh, and I find using the tip of the scope against that vessel and just turning the irrigation off and leaving against that vessel is, uh, is the best way to tamponade it. Brisk bleeding that is arterial in nature is best managed by immediate endographic embolization uh, and not wasting time and taking patient right to the IR suite. This is an example here of a pulsatile arterial bleed during a resection of a TCC. You can see the vessels here bleeding. In this case, you can see the laser beam, it's the green light, a red light, and we're using the laser beam here to defocus and stop the bleeding. You can see that the bleeding completely stops with the laser. So the trick here is not to put the laser against the lesion directly, but have it about a millimeter away so you get a coagulative effect from the laser, and that can seal the bleeding. This is a case we had when I was at Columbia a few years back, uh, referred from a, another institution. Uh, and this is a patient who underwent, it was a thin 58-year-old female with multiple comorbidities, was very uh, cachectic-like looking female, and uh, likely she had a very thin ureter. She underwent ureteroscopy and basket, uh, laser lithotripsy and basket extraction for an impacted stone in her right proximal ureter. And in the recovery room, the patient became hypotensive, tachycardic, and hypokalemic with a rapidly decreasing hematocrit, requiring IV potassium transfusion uh, me, I'm sorry, requiring IV transfusion of packed red blood cells as well as potassium chloride to uh, improve her hyperkalemia, hypokalemia and her bleeding. CT scan was immediately done in the recovery room, which showed uh, an expanding hematoma in the retroperitoneum. Angiography was immediately done and showed that a branch of the L1 lumbar artery uh, was bleeding. And this was identified to be a right common femoral approach with angiography. And you could see extravasation into a large hematoma. This is uh, what the situation looked like here. You can see there's an expanding hematoma in this area. You can see the bowel. There's a stent in place, okay. And patient had a previous cholecystectomy. These are the surgical clips. This is the stent here going up. And the bleeding vessels right here, you can see a blush with the, with the dye filling this area here in the retroperitoneum. So the vessel is actually a branch of the renal artery. It's coming off here going down and a tiny little branch crossing the ureter right here. You can see it. And the rupture is right here and you can see the blush. Luckily, they were able to put some platinum coils and successfully embolize this lesion here. And you can see no blush at the end of that procedure. That patient was then referred to me for management. And of course, I was afraid of going back through the injury. And what I found was when we had a repeat CT scan is that not only had they gotten into bleeding, but they hadn't, able to be, they hadn't been able to remove the stones. And most of the stone had just been fragmented and sitting up in the kidney. And so I had to go up through this area 
to uh, remove the remaining stones. And I was afraid to do that. And I was afraid to dilate this area, even though it was a little bit of a stricture there. You can see this medial band here and a smaller band here. But luckily, uh, I didn't have to, I didn't use an access sheath and I went through this area just with gentle uh, dilation and no sheath at all. I think this was probably a sheath injury, even though the op report didn't uh, specify any particular uh, problem during the surgery that she had had before. So we were able to remove the fragments and this was successfully done and it was healed nicely and she did well. Uh, but that was the first case I've ever seen of bleeding of, from the ureter, severe bleeding from the ureter with reed rostomy. But just to note, it can occur, uh, especially in a thin females who have a very thin ureters and there may be a blood vessel very close to the ureter. So dilating that ureter and perforating the ureter could cause that bleeding. Bleeding from the kidney can be more severe and use of pressurized irrigation uh, without the use of an access sheath has been shown to cause significant bleeding from a fornicial rupture. Uh, so these are not benign procedures. This can lead to formation of a subcapsular hematoma. Incidence of this is quite low, 0.4%. Other risk factor is someone who's got a very thin renal cortex. So the parenchyma is thin already. And so the, uh, the fornicial rupture goes right to the subcapsular area and you get a large subcapsular hematoma, as you see here or it can be a perirenal hematoma as well. You can see here's the hematoma expanding in the retroperitoneum in this case. Sometimes this doesn't occur during the procedure uh, or in the, in the post-op period, but even a few days later. Presenting symptoms can be flank pain, hematuria, abdominal pain, nausea or vomit, vomiting, or a fever. And again, it could occur days later. So if this occurs days later after your uteroscopy, don't uh, ignore it as to stent colic or patient having uh, symptoms from the surgery, but it could actually be a hematoma and have a low threshold for obtaining an ultrasound or a CT scan if that happens. Most renal bleeding um, makes the uh, visualization very difficult to proceed uh, with the procedure, but it is self-limited. You should be able to successfully complete the procedure if the bleeding's mild, but more severe bleeding may necessitate termination of the procedure, stent placement, and then if there appears to be a significant bleed, uh, maybe taking the patient for embolization. If the bleeding is brisk during a procedure uh, and you were using an access sheath, the best maneuver is to place the dilator back into the access sheath with the wire and wait. The reason for the wire is you don't want any lumen of the reader of the access sheath open. You want to tamponade as completely as possible. So you want to completely seal off that ureter so the blood has nowhere to go and has to stay in the kidney. And by uh, creating that, uh, that space, that closed space there, uh, you can have the blood clots fill the collecting system. Once it's filled the collecting system, usually there's enough pressure that'll stop the bleeding unless it's a, a significant artery that's bleeding. Mucosal tear of a ureter is usually a minor complication, can cause by instrument trauma, stone manipulation with a basket, inadvertent application of an energy source to the ureter, or an access sheet that compromises blood flow, which can also compromise blood flow and induce ischemia. Mucosal tear of ureter can potentially lead to a false passage or a ureteral perforation. It's a weak area of the ureter that that can occur in, and it can ultimately result in ureteral stricture formation. Usually a stricture will not form, however, no matter what you do to the ureter, because we do automatically, we do on purpose injure the ureter when we're doing endoureterotomies or endopilotomies, and those patients don't usually stricture down. They're treating a stricture that way. But it usually results from when you're treating a stone because when you're creating fragments with a laser, these fragments can migrate beneath the tear. And this leads to a fibrotic reaction. As you may know, calcium oxalate crystals uh, have been shown to be extremely inflammatory. They can create a severe inflammation in the tissues and that can lead to fibrosis and stricture formation and stone granulomas even. So the key here is to completely remove all the stone fragments from above the level of the tear 
and then wash out the tear as well. So there's no stones above the tear or in the tear. In this way, most of the time, these tears will heal, heal fine with the stent. Now, as we know, ureteral access sheets are not benign and they can cause injury. This is the classic study by Olivia Traxer uh, in 2013, demonstrating that in patients with access sheets, 46.5% demonstrate some sort of injury. Deep injury involving smooth muscle can occur in up to 13% of patients. Risk factors include male gender, older age, and a lack of pre-existing stent. They graded the injuries from zero to four, as you can see in this grading scale here, from minor or no lesions or ureteral mucosal erosion only, which is grade one, up to grade four, which is a total ureteral avulsion. Grade two and three are easy to distinguish. One is ureteral injury, ureteral wall injury that is full thickness, but not involving the periureteral fat and two and involving the periureteral fat three. These are examples of the different grades. You can see a grade one in this on, on A here. This is just a mucosal disruption. This is grade two and involves the ureter and you can see the adventitia and the strands, but it hasn't gone through the ureteral wall. You don't see any fat. And this is a complete tear involving the ureteral, uh, you can see the ureteral fat through it. Uh, usually these heal very well, again, as long as no fragments go into the stricture, into the disrupted area. Stents left in for one to eight weeks will cause healing. And patients with grade two to three injuries are more likely to develop pyelonephritis. And they thought in the series it was possibly due to the longer indwelling time of the double J stent causing reflux and causing pyelonephritis. So in some of these patients, it may be wise to recheck urine cultures or to put them on prophylactic antibiotics for a uh, period of time while their stent is in until the stent comes out, especially if they have a history of urinary tract infections and pyelonephritis or have had infection stones at the time of treatment. False passage usually occurs when the ureteral mucosa is perforated, but the wall itself remains intact. Usually occurs at the blind passage of a guide wire against a tight ureteral orifice at the level of an obstructing or impacted stone or in a tortuous or stitured ureter. So the tight area of the ureter causes the guide wire to disrupt the mucosa and go submucosal, and this causes the false passage. Recognition is, key to is the key to management of this. Direct visual placement of the guide wire into the true lumen is ideal. Retrograde studies can be performed to confirm the entry into the true lumen before you place a stent to make sure you're not pushing a stent into the retrograde. And two weeks is usually a sufficient time to allow these defects to heal. Retal perforation is a more severe injury and usually occurs when too much force is applied during ureteral access or dilation. Fragmentation of a tightly impacted stone can also lead to this. Mike Grasso did a review of this from 1988 to 1990 and found the rate of perforation ranged from zero to 4% and uh, highest rate occurred earliest in the earlier studies, which lower rates later. And more recent studies have shown the incidence of perforation to be lower, except those caused by an access sheet. Now, in uh, treatment uh, usually requires adequate drainage of the collecting system, which is typically accomplished with a double J stent alone. A more complete drainage with a percutaneous nephrostomy with or without a Foley in addition to a stent may be necessary to prevent a urinoma, however. And uh, in my practice, if I see notice a significant uh, tear in the ureter or is an iatrogenic tear in the ureter with an endoureterotomy or an endopylotomy, a Foley catheter is key here because you don't want reflux Reflux causes the urinoma to form by allowing urine to go through the incision that is made. So a Foley catheter for 24 hours is usually enough to allow the uh, enough sealing of the, uh, of the incision or of the perforation uh, to allow it to heal. Open or laparoscopic repair may be necessary if the defect is very large and stricture formation of course is possible after the defect heals. 
What do you do when you have an impacted stone? Cases like this, sometimes a guide wire will not go past. So the key here is not to force a guide wire past the stone. And if you want to put a guide wire past the stone, do it under direct vision. You can put a ureteroscope up to the stone and place a guide wire. But if the stone is severely impacted, it may not be worthwhile putting a guide wire as this may cause a submucosal injury to the ureter, cause a false passage. So what you can do is place a guide wire up to the stone, but not past it. If it's not going past, just leave it uncoiled underneath the stone and place an access sheet if you want. I don't typically use access sheets in this situation, but some people do. You can place an access sheet underneath the stone because you don't want to build up an intrarenal pressure while you're treating the stone and you want to use irrigation if possible uh, to prevent mucosal injury. You want that cool irrigation fluid bathing the tissues that you're going to be lasering since the tissues are directly against the stone and transmission of heat from the stone to the tissues around the stone can lead to a stricture. In this situation what I like to do is try to free the stone up and the safest instrument to use is actually a ureteroscope. It's a very blunt tip and it's unlikely to perforate. So you place the, stope, stone, the scope directly against the stone and gently nudge the stone. You can even tap on the stone gently to try to free up the stone. Even if you're not successful in freeing it up, at least you're able to move the, some of the mucosa away from the stone and create a nice space to work. The other trick you can use is use a laser fiber to try to bluntly loosen the stone. Here's a laser fiber here going in, and you try to rock the stone back and forth. By rocking the stone up and down, you're, you're peeling it away from the mucosa and creating some space. And again, the key here is to get the irrigation fluid to go around the stone and bathe the area so when you treat the stone, you will not cause heating of the tissues. If all else fails and you still can't dislodge the stone, the best uh, way to deal with the stone is to treat the stone by lasering the very center of it. Again, you want to stay away from tissues. You don't want to create a stricture. You don't want to injure the tissues. So stay right in the center of the stone and let those fragments wash back. So if you're using an access sheet, that's nice because the uh, small particles will wash back out through the access sheet and you can use irrigation. And the irrigation force will actually hit the stone and cause the particles to go backward towards you instead of migrating up toward the renal collecting system. What I like to do is change the angle of my fiber and come from top-down approach, I call it. Coming from 12 o'clock, you're much less likely to injure the ureter than if you're coming from six o'clock and the fiber is against the tissues. Coming from above, this, the fiber automatically aims toward the middle of the stone instead of aiming toward the bottom of the stone or the top of the stone. You can control the aim of the fiber much easier. So you create a path at 12 o'clock, as you can see here. Once the path's created, you can go past the stone and remove the fragments. Also, you don't want to, what do you do about those fragments that are stuck against the mucosa and they're still not coming off? I use my laser fiber here bluntly to sort of just touch the, the fragments and wipe them off from the mucosa, as you can see here. You don't want to fire against the tissue because you'll get a stricture or you'll embed that fragment into the tissue. So you want to bluntly use your laser fiber. Um, I like to use a tipless nitinol basket in removing these fragments. It's the least traumatic way to remove them. Using a stainless steel basket is more likely to cause injury, uh, but a nitinol basket or a uh, grasper, such as a Dakota, a Dakota or a N-gauge, is useful in this situation to get these fragments engaged and remove them. And of course, always inspect the collecting system for pieces that may have migrated up. Even in the best circumstances and you think you didn't get any fragments up, you'd be surprised how often fragments did go up. Ureteral avulsion is one of the most feared and severe complications we encounter during ureteroscopy. A review of 10 studies that were published in 2006 noted an avulsion rate of 0.14%. This usually occurs in the proximal third of the ureter when the distal, <clears throat> distal ureter is torn from the remaining ureter and usually the weakest point 
is right where the right at the renal pelvic junction where the ureter joins the renal pelvis. That's usually the area that evulses. Often occurs when basketed stones are too large and are forcibly removed through the ureter whose caliper is not large enough for the stone to be passed. This can be avoided by directly visualizing the renal mucosa slide by as you're pulling the stone. So having a little separation from the stone in your reteroscope so you can see the mucosa sliding by is useful. Of course, you, any significant resistance as you're withdrawing the reteroscope should signal that the ureter is too small. In these situations, don't try to force, don't try to use any, um, any uh, pressure or any jerky movements with the ureteroscope to try to get it past that area. Uh, it should be a very slow, gentle movement. If, it's don't, if the scope's not coming easily, you should stop pulling immediately. The stone should be released. So I like to push the stone back into a more dilated proximal segment and release it there. Uh, you can release it more easily. If the basket is impacted against the tissue, it will not release the stone. So you have to push the stone back up. Sometimes this won't happen. The stone will not release from the basket. In this situation, you can place a laser fiber alongside the basket inside the working channel of the reader scope and laser the stone while it's still inside the basket. In this situation, always open the basket first. You're much less likely to damage the basket that way. And of course, a damaged basket can leave pieces of wire behind and you don't want to do that. Uh, in some situations, the, uh, the channel, working channel, the reteroscope will not allow even a 200 micron laser fiber to go through with the basket still in place. In these cases, you have to disassemble the basket, take the reteroscope out and place the reteroscope uh, alongside the basket and then use a laser to break the stone while it's in the basket. If a ureteral evulsion is suspected, retrograde pilogram should be performed to confirm the injury. Uh, typically what you'll see is complete extravasation from the distal ureter. Uh, you can have a scabbard type injury where the ureter, the whole ureter has been pulled out through the, uh, through the urethra. In this case, you're not going to be able to do a retrograde pylogram, but the, con the condition and the, uh, uh, is obvious what has happened. In these cases, you're not going to be, once the ureter is pulled out through into the bladder or out the urethra, there's no way you're going to be able to rectify this with endoscopic or even immediate surgery to try to re-anastomose the ureter to where it's been torn off. So in these situations, usually a nephrostomy tube would be advisable when it's a complete scabbard injury like that. Laparoscopic or open surgery may be required as well uh, down the road. So a uh, nephrostomy tube can be placed temporarily or the patient could be taken immediately back if it's recognized during the operating, during the procedure, a patient can be taken for laparoscopic or open surgery. Location of the injury will dictate the repair that is used. A primary anastomosis or ileal ureter, if it's proximal to the crossing vessels, of course, if the patient hasn't had a bowel prep, you may be less, more reluctant to do an ileal ureter in these situations as an immediate procedure, but more as a delayed. And if the lesion is below the crossing vessel, uh, below, below the iliac vessels, usually a ureteroneocystostomy or a, uh, with a psoas hitch or a bowari flap may be necessary. An nephrectomy, if the renal function was already severely compromised and the patient had already had severe hydronephrosis, may be better than trying to repair if you think the renal function was pretty severely compromised to begin with. Postoperatively, uh, infections can occur. Urinary tract infections, bacteremia, and sepsis all can occur and can be minimized by ensuring preoperative sterile urine with a negative urine culture and giving appropriate antibiotics. I'm going to go into a little more detail later about infectious complications. Unrecognized perforation or extravasation can lead to periurethral fluid collections, such as urinomas and hematomas. It can also be caused if a fornicial rupture occurs from increased irrigation pressure. So again, do not use pressure irrigation if you're not using an access sheet. Uh, and even if you're using an access sheet, make sure you are not using 
uh, high pressures. Some people use some sort of a device to administer the irrigation, and those can be dangerous because you're constantly pumping fluid in without any, uh, any recourse. I, I prefer to use a pressure bag. I can, uh, create, I can uh, create the pressure myself that way and uh, increase it or decrease it as needed. You can, uh, patients who have a uh, rupture uh, of the collecting system can present with plank pain, fever, or ileus, and this is usually managed uh, with a double J stent for two to four weeks. Complications can also occur from positioning. Neuropathies can occur. Perineal nerve injury from lateral compression against the calf or against the knee can occur. Uh, and you want to avoid winging your, uh, your uh, stirrups. That means uh, having them go wide because that'll cause the calf to go under, uh, to have pressure on it. You want to make sure that the leg is uh, positioned well without that lateral pressure. Sciatic nerve injury from exaggerated lithotomy can also occur. So I, I never use exaggerated lithotomy. I always try to keep the stirrups as low as possible in low lithotomy position. Avoid uh, these by careful positioning and proper padding of pressure points. DVTs can also occur, in, especially in high-risk patients or in procedures that are long. So try to keep the procedure times as low as possible. Placement of sequential compression stockings is preventative and use of sub-Q heparin in patients at high risk and in procedures that are gonna be long. Let's say after an hour or two, you know the procedure's gonna be long, you can give sub-Q heparin during the procedure as well. Late complications uh, of uh, ureteroscopy include strictures, which can occur at the ureteral pelvic junction, at the infundibula between calyces and the renal pelvis, or in the ureter itself, leading to stricture formation. Silent hydronephrosis can occur. So I, in all my patients who have ureteroscopy, we always do a post-operative ultrasound. Usually we do this in one month after the procedure to make sure there's no silent hydronephrosis. Uh, in large series, looking at this, this has been shown to be cost-effective to, to do an ultrasound in everyone who has a ureteroscopy. Uh, again, uh, you, uh, you with stricture formation, this can be diagnosed with retrograde pilogram studies to assess the number and length of strictures. Unfortunately, a CT scan may show hydronephrosis and may show the most proximal stricture, but may not show that there's other strictures below that. And you can't always see the length of a stricture on a CT scan, even a CT urogram. Uh, therefore, a retrograde pilogram is important here in defining the amount, uh, the degree of stricture formation. Most of these strictures can be treated endoscopically, especially if they're short, under one centimeter or so. Balloon dilation uh, can be used, although it has a very poor success rate. Homium laser incision, incision is, uh, is the most common used therapy. And in the past, we used to use more cold knife incisions, which has fallen out of favor now that we have the homium laser. Longer or more complex strictures may require open or minimally invasive surgery, excision and primary repair if it's a simple uh, stricture, and ureteral reimplantation or iliar ureter uh, and kidney mobilization may be necessary for longer strictures, and I'll talk a little bit more in detail about it. Uh, so this is an example of an infundibular stricture that occurred after a prior surgery. And this is a case where we're using a balloon to treat this infundibular stricture antegrade. So we perked into the hydrocalyx, and we're using a balloon to expand. And you can see the balloon expanding the stricture. And we usually do this to just create a working space. And so now that the balloon's been used, you can see the area of the stricture is wide open. You can see the rest of the collecting system through. And now we can place a guide wire through the stricture. And then usually I'll take a homium laser or other device or a uh, Collins knife and then cut the stricture even further to make sure it's wide open and place a stent. Location of the incision is very important. It depends on the location. So infundibular strictures should always be uh, treated at 12 o'clock or six o'clock position. This has been the area to show the least amount of bleeding. 
UPJ incisions, as we mentioned before, should be true lateral. At the level of the iliac vessels, the ureter crosses the iliac vessels. You want to treat anteromedial. Caveat here is a peritoneal cavity can be plastered against the ureter, and you may get into the peritoneal cavity, and this has happened to me before, so you have to be very careful with, these area, with this area in particular. Distal ureter or the ureteral vesicle junction, again, anteromedial, uh, is the safest area to, to cut. These are examples of infundibular uh, strictures that were treated endoscopically. In the first case, you can see the ureteroscope being placed against the area. You can see the stricture clearly. This is a minor stricture. This is just a fibrous band. This is usually treated easily with a laser just by cutting through the fibrous bands and expanding it wide into the parenchyma. Um, second case, a little more involved. Uh, it's, a, it's a more uh, dense stricture and you have to cut into the parenchyma. Again, we're using 12 o'clock and six o'clock for a cutting to avoid any injury. And you can see the parenchyma now. We cut the parenchyma as well to make sure it's wide open. And then the last case there you see at the bottom is a very, very large hydrocalyx. And you can see that we cut through the stricture enough just to get the ureteroscope through. And we can inspect the inside of that hydrocalyx, make sure there's no tumors or other abnormalities. And then I marsupialize that calyx into the renal pelvis just by taking the laser and cutting it widely. And so there's a huge wide open communication between that calyx and the renal pelvis. And in that situation, it's rarely going to ever reoccur if you have it wide enough. UPJ obstructions, of course, I'm not going to talk about congenital UPJ obstructions, but secondary UPJ obstructions, uh, endopilotomy can be very successful for. Uh, of course, you still should make sure there's no crossing vessel, because crossing vessel occurs in patients who have congenital UPJ, but in patients who have secondary UPJ, a vessel can become, the renal pelvis can become draped against a vessel. And so even with a secondary UPJ that's iatrogenic, you should always check for that crossing vessel. And here is an angiogram showing a, a lower pole crossing vessel. And this is the situation where the second artery coming off the aorta can cross the area of the UPJ. And you can see in this patient had a large renal pelvis. You can see from the subtraction angiogram here and the vessel crossing. Um, and again, you want to cut true lateral. You want to make a cut lateral into the fat. You can see this beautiful clean incision into the fat in this case here. Uh, Success is uh, usually achieved with endopilotomy for a short segment, secondary UPJ obstruction that has failed pyeloplasty, or in uh, primary cases where the stricture is short, one to 1.5 centimeters. And success, um, we've, been, we've shown that it's about 90% in these situations. The incision again should be made laterally. This is a series I published a few years ago, uh, looking at the efficacy of endopilotomy in patients with secondary UPJ obstruction. And our success rate in adults was 94%. Success rate is lower in children because they have a smaller caliber ureter to work with, and there's less chance for healing with an incision. But in adults, it works very well for, uh, and uh, should be tried as a primary treatment if the stricture is short. Uh, this can be done ureteroscopically or antegrade. This is an example of where we treated a secondary UPJ obstruction with uh, uh, ureteroscope and a homium laser. And the key here is to make a one incision, not have several incisions. So you don't want parallel incisions. You want one incision in the right place. Usually here we're cutting lateral or a slightly posterior lateral. In this case, it's easier with the ureteroscope to do that. And you wanna make sure you get it all the way into the renal pelvis. Sometimes I'll always um, almost go into the lower pole of the kidney, almost like a ureterocalicostomy. And it has to be full thickness so you can see here so you can see the fat around the area. Most ureteral strictures are atrogenic or from, uh, and sometimes from prior uh, GYN surgery as well. Impacted stones, as we mentioned, pose a major risk. Radiation-induced strictures are usually long associated with poor vascularity, and so they will not respond well to endoscopic procedures. Uh, 
Balloon dilation, as I mentioned before, has a poor long-term success rate for strictures, less than 30%. In some cases, they make the stricture actually longer or more dense, so I advise against that. Indications for endoureterotomy include a short segment stricture that's less than two centimeters and incomplete. If it's a complete stricture, the success rate goes down quite significantly and good vascularity to the tissue. And that's usually judged at the time of the endoscopic procedure. You can see if there's bleeding or not. Lack of any bleeding whatsoever indicates poor vascularity and less likely, uh, less likely success. Again, where to make the incision, proximal ureter, it should be lateral. Mid ureter iliac should be anteromedial and the distal ureter should be anterior or anteromedial. Uh, AccuSize uh, is a device we used to use in the past. Uh, it's a blind device. It's not done endoscopically and should never be formed in the proximity of the great vessels. And I don't know if it's even available anymore, uh, but should not be used in this day. Now we have a home laser. This is an example, a case here where we had an iatrogenic ureteral stricture. It was a 65 year old female who presented to an outside hospital emergency room with right flank pain. A non-contrast CT showed a bright proximal stone. She had a right ureteroscopy at the institution. And then she developed flank pain within a day or two after stent removal. A CT scan of the abdomen pelvis showed a moderate degree of right hydroureter nephrosis and hydroureter with perinephric stranding, a moderate to high grade obstruction at the level of the midureter near the iliac vessels. And you can see here the dilated renal pelvis and proximal ureter. And the ureter continues to be dilated right to this point right here, which is very close to the crossing of the iliac vessels right there. So this is the area of stricture. This is one of the more feared area for a stricture to be because it's close to the great vessels and you're always worried about where you're going to cut. As I mentioned here, in most of these cases, you want to cut anteromedial, as I'll show you. So this is what the retrograde pilogram looked like. This is a flexible cystoscope, ureteral catheter placed into the ureter to inject. And you can see the stricture here is about a centimeter to a centimeter and a half long. So it's about the edge of where we can treat it endoscopically. And you can see that the Fibrosis probably continues a little bit up the ureter because the ureter is very dilated up here, but not so dilated in this area. So you have to treat not just this area right here, but you have to go up into this area. So the whole area has to be treated, which is going to be about two to three centimeters, which is typical for an endoureterotomy. You want to treat one centimeter above and one centimeter below the lesion. So it's going to be about a three centimeter or longer incision you're making. Any shorter than that, you're probably not doing it right. And this is... Um, a blue defining the area, uh, and you can see that uh, this is what we did at the end of the procedure to make sure that the area is wide open. And this is what it looked like endoscopically. Here we have a guide wire in. You can see the guide wire actually is not in the right place. It created a submucosal false passage, which often happens with strictures. So the key here is to put a guide wire into the true lumen and then put a second wire, and I made sure both wires into the true lumen. And then going between the two wires to try to dilate with the semi-rigid reteroscope is very helpful. If you can't get a, a very thin semi-rigid reteroscope through the stricture, even with the parallel wire technique, then you're not going to be able to do the incision very well. So there, in that case, you can use a balloon gently just to open up the stricture enough. You don't want to open it all the way, but just enough to create a space that you can get your reteroscope through. And again, you want to make an anteromedial incision. You can see we're making it about the one o'clock to two o'clock position. And we start above the stricture, one centimeter above it, and then we continue the incision to one centimeter below the stricture. The incision has to be full thickness, so we're going through the mucosa, through the smooth muscle, and then through the adventitia. And you can see here, we went through the adventitia, but that's not enough. There's fibrosis around the ureter, so you wanna actually go through the fibrosis. So here, now you can see we're outside the ureter. So then I do is once we're outside the ureter like this, I'll actually um, 
take the ureteroscope and put it through the incision and dissect the ureter from through the incision I made. So I do retroperitonoscopy. I free the ureter up above the area and then cut more if I need to and then inject a little catalog into the stricture and then uh, uh, balloon dilate at the end and then put a stent to make sure it's quite open. Indications for open lap or robotic procedures to treat strictures are for strictures that have failed endoscopic treatment or that are medium or longer, and especially if stricture is higher up in the proximal or mid ureter. Ureteral calicostomy is a good choice for recurrent EPJ obstruction or with a patient who's got a small renal pelvis or an intrarenal pelvis. In those cases, uh, ureteral calicostomy is a good option. Illo ureter is useful for long segment strictures and transurethral ureterostomy is almost never a good answer, especially if you're taking an exam, especially in a patient who's got a history of stone disease. Distal ureteral strictures are best managed with a ureteral neocystostomy, again, with or without a psoas hitch, and a boari flap if it's a long defect, uh, 15 centimeters or longer. I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, infectious complications, because I think those are, are uh, that's what you're going to get asked about a lot are infectious complications and how to prevent them and what to, how to manage them. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, the weight of healthcare of urolithiasis, as we all know, is extremely high and morbidity and mortality lost from kidney stones in the U.S. is $1 billion. And with, if you count lost employment, it's $2 billion. And most of these costs are actually skewed towards stones that have caused infection or associated in some way with infection. So infection is a big burden on healthcare costs. Of course, urinary tract infection is the most common complication related to stone intervention. An adequate assessment of culture data and adherence to appropriate guidelines may prevent the development of urinary tract infections and potential for post-intervention sepsis, which is probably one of the most feared and dangerous complications from ureteroscopy besides avulsion. Uh, and uh, this presentation is based on SIU guidelines that were created by the International Consultation on Urologic Disease and the SIU in combination a few years back where we uh, had uh, a group gathered to make these recommendations. We talk about prophylaxis as well as interpretation of stone data and judicious use of antibiotics for urologic stone practice. So all patients, as we know, should be evaluated with a complete history, physical exam, laboratory tests, and I believe it's mandatory for ureteroscopy procedures to have a midstream urine culture in every patient pre-op. I don't believe that a urinalysis is efficient in this day and age because if the patient does become septic, you have no leg to stand on that you didn't do a culture. So whether it's recommended or not in the guidelines, I would, in my practice, always do a midstream urine culture. A full pre-op evaluation will identify high-risk patients with a potential for infectious complications. I find that it's not enough just to look at the preoperative urine culture, actually go back up to a year and look at any urinary tract infections the patients had in the past year, because that'll help guide me in terms of what antibiotics I used at the time of surgery. So even if I'm not giving antibiotics before the procedure, oral antibiotics, I wanna know what antibiotics best at the time of the procedure. And going back to looking at old cultural data, old culture data can tell you what infections the patients had before and what antibiotics would have worked for that infection and just in case the patient's got an infected stone or a stent that's indwelling that has some biofilm on it, you wanna use the right antibiotic to treat that. Preoperative evaluation include assessment of patient factors as well as urinary attractive factors. Patient factors include if they're immunosuppressed, if they've been on chemo or have been taking steroids, diabetes, advanced age with poor nutrition, obesity, renal or liver dysfunction, female patients are at higher risk uh, because they're higher risk for UTIs. 
coexistent infections, that they have infection somewhere else in their body, uh, prolonged hospitalization, so they're colonized with particularly uh, more virulent bacteria, and then urinary tract factors, anatomic abnormalities, uh, voiding dysfunction, urinary diversion, urinary tract obstruction, and of course, indwelling catheter stents or nephrostomy tubes are all risk factors that should be evaluated preoperatively. Preoperative urine cultures and understanding of the local susceptibility patterns are essential. And antibiogram varies by location by hospital. So you should know your hospital's antibiogram and what, for example, E. coli is the most common pathogen. You should know what the E. coli antibiogen, antibiogram looks like at your hospital and know if fluoroquinolone, for example, is never gonna work for E. coli or very unlikely to work. You should know that ahead of time. Uh, Gram-positive bacteria must be considered. These are not always nitrite producing. So urinalysis showing a negative nitrite, but some leukocytes, don't chalk it off to sterile pyuria from the stone. Assess that it might be bacteria and always send a culture in these situations. Indwelling catheter stents or tubes should raise suspicion for fungal colonization or infection. And someone who's had an indwelling catheter, I always give a dose of fluconazole before the procedure as well to uh, in that case, especially if it's been in for over a month, even if the bacterial culture is negative, but you're seeing white cells in the urine or uh, what you think may be sterile pyuria, uh, may, make sure that you're assessing for possible fungal infection and treat them uh, prophylactically with fluconazole if you have a suspicion for this, especially if you see a biofilm. When you go in, you see a biofilm on a stent uh, and the patient had a negative culture, you see that biofilm. Biofilms are almost always associated with bacteria or infection. So look for that fungal infection and treat it prophylactically. Don't wait for candidal sepsis to occur. And make sure you send the urine for gram stain and urinalysis with microscopic evaluation of sediment to look for hyphae or pseudohyphae if you're suspicious. And again, sterile pyuria may indicate fungal infection and uh, this is more common with overuse of antibiotics and also in diabetic patients. So you have a patient who keeps getting negative cultures but they're having symptoms or having sterile pyuria suspect that that may be the case. Now there's also atypical fungal infections. They may not be candida or maybe unusual types of candida that don't show up in typical fungal cultures. So if you're not getting a negative fungal culture, suspect and send them to ID or have special cultures done to look for other fungus that might be other fungal types that may be present. I've seen that in patients. My typical protocol preoperatively is to, in patients who don't have any indwelling catheter stents, is to get a clean catch specimen if the clean cat specimen shows more than two bacteria or has mixed flora, I always have the patient come back and get a catheterized sample. That's very important. If the patient has a stent, then I'm even more likely to get a catheterized sample preoperatively. If the patient has an nephrostomy tube or Foley catheter, I never get the urine sample from the tube or from the bag. I always, what I do is I put a fresh bag on and then collect it. Or better yet, I take the bag off, put a syringe on the end of the catheter or nephrostomy tube, wait 10, 15 minutes or longer, have the patient drink lots of water, and then aspirate from the tube, directly from the tube, so I get what's inside the urinary collecting system. In patients who have nephrostomy tube, I get cultures from both the nephrostomy tube and avoided sample, so I know what cultures, what's growing in the bladder and what's going in the renal pelvis, as I'll show you later. We've done studies showing what's in the renal pelvis and what's in the bladder can be very, two different organisms, and either one can cause sepsis when we look at sepsis studies. Whatever's in the bladder can cause it, but whatever's in the kidney can cause it, in the renal pelvis, and whatever's in the stone can cause it. And what's in the stone can be different than what's in the renal pelvis and can be different than what's in the bladder. Not always the same bacteria and not always the same susceptibility pattern. So no, having cultures of all three areas are important in patients that you're highly suspicious uh, of ongoing infection. 
Increasing incidence of resistant pathogens uh, necessitates development of strategies to reduce antibiotic resistance. So we do want to rationally use antibiotics and don't empirically use, wait for the culture results. Limiting antibiotic prophylaxis to only those with predetermined risk is important. Patients with a positive culture must receive preoperative antibiotics tailored to culture-specific organisms. If a UTI is associated with obstruction, one must place a ureteral stent uh, or nephrostomy tube first prior to treating the stone, de decompress the system, treat the infection, and then go and treat. My policy is usually not to reculture every patient, but be judicious in who I reculture. If the patient has a positive culture and you place a tube or a stent or a nephrostomy, that's the bacteria that's going to cause sepsis later. Knowing that bacteria, treating it now, and continuing the treatment until you do the definitive procedure is what I prefer to do. Not stopping the antibiotics, reculturing, and restarting antibiotics, I don't like doing that. If I can continue that same antibiotic until we do the procedure, that's fine. Of course, it's going to be more than a week or two, uh, then it's always best to uh, stop the antibiotic reculture and then retreat. But when you retreat or treat prophylactically at the time of the procedure, always go back to that original bug. That's the one that's inside of them and colonizing them. So you always have to treat that one. Again, uh, treatment should be about five to seven days orally preoperatively or IV 24 hours or up to three days pre-op, especially if I'm doing a PCNL, I usually do it longer. With reteroscopy, we'll admit them one day before and give 24 hours of pre-op IV antibiotics. We get pushback from ID when we try to do longer than 24 hours, so that's what we end up doing. A persistently positive culture in a patient with a stent, again, um, may require removing that stent or nephrostomy tube and replacing it and then reevaluating cultures before the surgery. So if someone's had a nephrostomy tube in for three months or someone who's had a persistently positive culture and has a stent in for, let's say, a month or longer, and you're worried about sepsis, you may want to consider putting, replacing that stent or nephrostomy tube with a fresh one, getting a culture, and then treating them after one to two weeks after you have the culture results and have had them on antibiotics, instead of treating them with the old tube still in there. Um, based on our um, uh, consortium that we had, these are the levels of evidence and grading based on literature that's already existing. Uh, uh, level of evidence one is considered meta-analysis or good randomized controlled trial. Low quality randomized control trial would be level of evidence two. Level of evidence three is good quality case controlled studies and four is just expert opinion where there's no good studies uh, and grades are based on these exact uh, four criteria as well, grade A, B, C, and D. So these are the criteria I'm gonna be using. Uh, the Crows Uriroscopy Global Study reported a multi-center trial in 11,885 patients. In this series, the incidence of postoperative fever from ureteroscopy was 1.8%. Urinary tract infection postoperatively was 1% and sepsis was 0.3%. So these are good numbers to look at when you're looking at the incidence of infectious complications after ureteroscopy. Um, again, uh, we talked about antibiotic prophylaxis. Uh, now, the guidelines suggest a single prophylactic oral dose of Leviquin is sufficient, and I'll go over the AUA guidelines and can reduce the risk of bacteria from 12.5 to 1.8%. Be wary of enterococcus that I mentioned before. It's more common than previously thought, and usually it's resistant to fluoroquinolones. So you have to use either uh, ampicillin or vancomycin to treat enterococcus uh, IV, um, or orally uh, amox augmentin is my preferred treatment uh, if it works. Sometimes uh, nitrofentanyl or macrobid, macrobid is a good second choice if they're penicillin allergic. First-line antibiotic prophylaxis for endourological procedures. Endoscopic with manipulation of the guidelines are a single dose fluoroquinolone or Bacrim. These are the AUA guidelines. And again, here, ureteroscopy, all patients, fluoroquinolone or 
Bactrim as an antimicrobial choice preoperatively, that's oral. Alternatives can be aminoglycosides such as genomycin, tobramycin, plus or minus ampicillin. I like tobra myself for pseudomonas or um, ceftazidine for pseudomonas. Uh, so patient history of pseudomonas, I'll use those two. Uh, our first or second generation cephalosporin or, or augmentin are alternative antimicrobials. Intraoperative factors need to be evaluated in patient with an active UTI and obstruction need to decompress first, maintain low pressure irrigation, gravity irrigation, use of an access sheet can lower intrarenal pressures, can also be useful in patients with infections, and again, minimize the amount of pressurized irrigation in this case. Uh, consider forced diuresis, that's been used by some authors, giving Lasix at the beginning of the procedure to try to get the intrarenal pressure higher in the, in the tubules, so you're not getting intratubular reflux and getting bacteria uh, into the bloodstream. Uh, so that's something that may be useful. I don't typically use that, but that's something to consider. Uh, sending stone cultures in patients with suspected having infected stones is also uh, important uh, in, in even with ureteroscopy. Early recognition and management of sepsis is important. Lactate, helpers, lactate levels can be very helpful in recovery room if you're worried the patient has a fever or tachycardia and you're worried about impending sepsis. Sending a lactate level can predict that's going to occur or not and get get the patient to the IC or get them into uh, ID consult so you get uh, proper IV antibiotics on board. Culture-directed antibiotics whenever possible and broad-spectrum antibiotics if culture is not available. Best management, of course, is prevention. These are the rec level uh, grade recommendations uh, based on our committee meeting that we had. So identifying high-risk patients, that's a level of evidence two, grade B. Treating active UTI prior to procedure is level of evidence two and grade A recommendation. Ensuring a preoperative negative urine culture, again, grade two and uh, level B, uh, level two and grade B. Uh, antimicrobial prophylaxis in all patients, uh, that's uh, prior to the procedure, uh, that's level of evidence two and grade A recommendation. Never perform stone manipulation in the presence of an active urinary tract infection. You may have seen there's an article that just came out, I believe it was in Journal of Endourology on treating a patient even though they have sepsis, treating them with ureteroscopy uh, and laser of a ureteral stone in a distal ureter, even in the presence of a sepsis and, and infection. Uh, that article just came out, I think it was out of Turkey. Um, I wouldn't, I, in the United States, I don't think you can stand on two feet doing that. Even though they showed that there was no uh, in prolonged hospitalization in that group compared to the ones that had stent placement and, not, and had delayed treatment, I, I think you're, I, I wouldn't do it. I say anyone who's got an active UTI or early sepsis, you should be draining that collecting system. So I think you'll see that article, but uh, I think it's going to be a lot of uh, controversy about it. In patients who are, I'm surprised they didn't have an editorial in the journal. Uh, I'm really surprised. In patients with chronic bacteriuria, administer at least five days of culture-specific antibiotics prior to instrumentation. Uh, maintain low intrarenal pressure during the procedure. That's a level of evidence three, a grade B recommendation. Enforced diuresis, not much evidence for it, so that's a um, level four grade C recommendation. This is a paper, uh, this is a study I did uh, when I was at Columbia a few years back, 2011. We looked at, um, this is PCNL, but it, it's important because these infection stones we're treating now with ureteroscopy many times, things that we treated with PCNL before, now with our advances in ureteroscopes and laser technology, we're often treating them endoscopically with ureteroscope. And so I think this is apropos still. So we looked at 204 consecutive PCNL patients and we did bladder, renal pelvis, and stone cultures at the time of PCNL in all these patients. 
We did close monitor. We uh, did close monitoring for uh, SERS and uh, concordance of urine and stone cultures were analyzed, and regression analysis was also performed. This is what we found in terms of concordance. As I told you before, what's in the renal pelvis urine culture, what's in the stone culture, and what's in the bladder culture are not always concordant. You can see in this Venn diagram, the amount of times it's actually the same bug in all three is right here. It's very infrequent. Zero out of four was present in all. In, in, in every single person who had an infection in all three spots. There were four patients such that none of the times was it concordant in those patients. So there may not be concordance. That's why it's important to have not just the, if someone's at high risk for sepsis, not just getting a bladder urine culture preoperatively, but at the time of surgery, you may want to collect urine from the renal pelvis or from the bladder and from the stone, because if they get septic, you want to know what bacteria were in all three in order to know what antibiotics to give. The variety of pathogens in culture, some of these results surprised us. Enterococcus was much more common than we thought it was going to be, especially inside stones. 17% of stones had enterococcus in 17% uh, of struvite stones in a later study I did um, at Mount Sinai uh, had enterococcus in it. So that's a that's a often unrecognized cause of infection. And candida, again, candida can cause sepsis. So watch out for candida. 20 patients developed SERS in our series, uh, which is about 10%. Six went to the ICU. Concordance between urine and stone cultures is only 64 to 75%. SERS was more common in patients who had struvite calculi, of course, and struvite calculi significantly correlated with positive stone culture as well. Even appropriate treatment of preoperative with preoperative uh, treatment of preoperative UTIs with appropriate five to seven days of antibiotics still may not prevent SERS or sepsis, but it diminishes the rate of bacteremia and hastens recovery. Uh, in two SERS cases, only the only culture that was positive was the stone culture. So now in every patient, we do a stone culture, and we're doing that more for research than anything else. Uh, but I would recommend that anyone you suspect infection in, in any way, shape, or form, do a stone culture. It can be very important down the road. Uh, this is a nice study that came out of David Lifshitz's group in Israel, uh, published in 2017. And it showed that the amount of time a, stone, a stent is indwelling is a risk factor for post-ureteroscopy sepsis. In Israel, they have, um, they have a health system which doesn't allow immediate treatment in many cases, and the patient underwent delayed treatment of their stones, sometimes had stents in for one month, two months, or longer before they actually had definitive treatment of the stones. And they found that risk factors for sepsis included prior stent placement, female gender, and morbidity index. 97 patients were treated for positive preoperative cultures out of uh, 12, 56, 16%. Postoperative sepsis occurred less than 40 hours post-op in eight non-stented and 28 stented patients. So much more common in a patient that was stented. And sepsis rates after stent indwelling times of one, two, three, and greater than three months were one, four, 4.9, 5.5, and 9.2. So you can see progressive increase. The longer the stent is in, the more likely they are to have sepsis post-operatively. So in multivariate analysis, the risk factor in patients with prior stents was stent dwell time, <clears throat> a stent that was inserted for sepsis, and female gender. So these are patients to watch out for. Anyone with an indwelling stent in these situations should have consideration for more, uh, more aggressive antibiotic treatment prior to the procedure. Take-home messages, again, um, treat preoperative UTIs with culture-specific antibiotics and repeat. Uh, again, I don't repeat cultures before surgery, but this was the recommendations they had. Level of evidence two, grade A. Drain urine if UTI is associated with obstruction. That's level of evidence one, grade A. And treat persistent UTIs not associated uh, with 
obstruction with culture-specific antibiotics for five to seven days orally or 24 hours IV preoperatively. That was a grade A recommendation. These were additional recommendations in patients with indwelling stents, minimized well time, consider antifungal treatment, make sure to cover enterococcus, consider changing the stent uh, prior to definitive treatment if it's been in longer than a month. In patients with positive cultures, do a clean catch midstream sample. Don't be afraid to have the patient come back for a straight cath. Very important, especially in obese patients, difficult body habitus, indwelling catheters, um, res multiple resistant organisms, mixed cultures, uh, uh, those are all important patients to have catheterized samples in. Uh, and if the sample is unreliable, there's reliable treat with culture-specific antibiotics five to seven days. Do not repeat after finishing the course to verify it's negative. Do the procedure while they're still on that antibiotic, if at all possible. In case of no possible oral regimen, don't be afraid to admit these patients for 24 to 48 hours of IV antibiotics prior to their definitive treatment. I prefer three days in patients who have a history of sepsis or definite screw bite stone. Uh, but 24 to 48 hours of literature is what's sufficient. 